0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello. He was a man who loved ciphers and a cipher of a man, an Anglo-Irishman who claimed not to like Ireland, but became one of its greatest champions. His knowing humor on the page was accompanied by some curious behavior in his personal life. If all you did was read his biography, you might think, well, here's a figure who's so ridiculous, so full of contradictions, so full of strangeness, such a grand figure whose personality is filled with such aspects of tininess, someone should satirize him. and instead, he was one of the greatest and most famous satirists of all time. The author of Gulliver's Travels and A Modest Proposal, two works that readers today still encounter as children and adults three centuries after they were written. His name, of course, was Jonathan Swift, and his Swiftian style is one we still enjoy and admire. Who was Jonathan Swift? Why was he so strange? We'll have all that today on the History of Literature. (music) Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Jonathan Swift. I did not know what to expect when I started the research on this one. I was excited for a few reasons. Gulliver's Travels, for one. Anyone who writes a work like that is worth digging into. The history of literature has a few classics like that. Robinson Crusoe, Sherlock Holmes, Frankenstein, The Three Musketeers, works that sort of transcend their time and become children's classics, movies, adaptations, source material for others. They become literary archetypes. Dr. Johnson, and there's another reason why I was excited, my hero, Dr. Johnson wrote about Swift, which is always a treat for me. I'll have plenty of good quotes from Dr. Johnson in here. He makes me laugh as much as any author, I think. I can't wait for the Dr. Johnson episode, but it might have to be a (laughs) 10-parter. George Orwell wrote about Swift, too, and that's another good thing for me. I might have a few quotes from him in here as well. Orwell's an interesting case because he's so English and Swift is as well, and they both were immersed in politics. Then Orwell traced Swift's politics and realized that he disagreed with him on just about everything. He's writing a couple hundred years later, of course. He thought Swift was on the wrong side of all the debates, and yet Orwell revered him. Which says a lot, and frankly, politics—the ins and outs of po- of ins and outs of politics—is something I'm going to avoid with Swift for the most part. This was the era of Whigs and Tories, and he was in one group that was in power sometimes, and in another group that fell out of favor at other times. And the Whigs and Tories of his era are not the Whigs and Tories of other eras, and in the end, it's really not particularly of interest. To a general reader in the year 2019, my eyes glaze over. Well, it's not exactly that. It's that it's way too detailed and way too unimportant for us today. It's a reminder of how insignificant politics can be. And I'm as guilty as that, of that as anyone. Politics is incremental. It's baby steps a lot of the time. A hundred years from now, people might read about my lifetime, the late 20th to the early and hopefully to the mid-21st century, and they might say, oh yeah, this was when culture was dominated by television at first, and then the internet came, and people were adjusting to that, and oh right, there was a Cold War with two superpowers, and then there was one superpower, and people were still driving cars with gasoline engines, and and then if their future reader is really into politics, they might say, oh yeah, I heard, th- I heard about the two parties they had in America, Republicans and Democrats, and Republicans were kind of a mix of wealthy people and religious Southerners, and Democrats had a coalition of minority groups, and suburban liberals, and the unions were on the decline, and it led to the situation where the white working class was sort of in both camps, appealed to by both sides, but meanwhile... The demographics were changing. And guns were everywhere. Abortion was an issue. Immigration was an issue. Manufacturing had been moving overseas for decades and was almost gone. That's that's our 100-year look back. What would we say? And the bill that was proposed to raise the minimum wage to $10 was defeated, not on a straight party vote, but was sent to a committee that lowered it to $8. And then it was raised again to ten dollars, and ultimately it was at ten seventy five or no one's interested in that minutiae, even though it's important at the time, matters to people. but that's because we're following all this stuff very closely, and it has an impact on our lives. But if a hundred years from now there's no minimum wage needed because everyone in the world is guaranteed a basic income, or if there's no minimum wage needed, Because there are no jobs or whatever. Maybe the minimum wage is $1,000 an hour and you really don't care about all the back and forth of how the legislative sausage was made, right? Unless, unless someone managed to cut through all that, someone like a Jonathan Swift, unless someone like that came along and changed the debate with his pen, with his humor, with his wit, with his exposure, not just of the particular ins and outs of a particular debate, but of the men and women who were engaged in that debate. A man like Swift who could expose the foibles of humanity in a way that's still recognizable hundreds of years after he wrote. Now we're talking about something else. Now we're talking about not just politics, but humanity. The universal impulses that help human creatures understand other human creatures. Now the stakes have been raised. We're not just talking about the life of some bill as it winds its way through the legislative process. Now we're talking about recognizable figures, hypocrites, windbags, zealots, oddballs, heroes, villains, saviors. Now we're talking about literature. And we might want to learn more at that point. We might want to dig into the history of the minimum wage laws because our Swift, or maybe it's Mark Twain, or maybe we're studying John Stewart now, some 22nd century person is watching those videos or videos of John Oliver or Samantha B. whoever the figure and whatever the medium. We now have a reason to care about that damn minimum wage bill and whether it's $10 or $12 and whether it's a vote on the floor or saved by some hero in the committee. Historically, We don't read the satirist to learn about an issue. We read about an issue to better understand the satirist. And we read the satirist to better understand life. When the satire is good, that is, when it has the power to last. Most of it doesn't. Most of it comes and goes, and most of it is pretty crude. Look at the president. Doesn't he have a big nose? Look at the prime minister. He tucks his shirt into his underwear. This one's boring. That one's a lech. That one has a lisp. Tweaking power, well, I'm not opposed to that. I'm in favor of it. Punching up is fine with me, whether it's punching up at a powerful leader or a political party or an institution like academia or the church or corporations or whatever. Thank God we have the freedom to do it. It's a little lazy if it just calls a president out for having a big nose, but thank God we are allowed to do it. It's a sign of a free society and it helps keep people sane. But when the satire is good, it's different. It reflects something new about ourselves. It exposes hypocrisy that has become so normalized we don't even notice it. It doesn't just change our minds about the passage of a particular bill. It changes the way we think about our relationship to the state or our relationship to one another. It transforms the stories we tell ourselves, the myths, the legends, the accepted conventional wisdom. It turns those inside out and shows us the truth about them. That's the goal of a Swift. Let's see who he was and what he did. But first, let's take a quick break and come back with some emails and comments. My listeners can be a little satirical, too. (laughs) Isn't that great? Guess what their object of satire is? Me yours truly, and my little podcast. Are they punching up at Jack Wilson and the history of literature? I guess they are. But why does it feel like they're punching down? Maybe it always feels that way to the politician or the celebrity or even the lowly podcaster. Maybe satire always stings a little to the recipient. We'll see that with Swift as well. People who were frustrated by him. So maybe I need to accept it in the spirit of good fun okay fine picture me with tears rolling down my face saying they're laughing with me not at me with me (laughs) with me Show. Yeah. Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Let's start with a website comment from Andrew from London. Hello, Jack. Stumbled across your podcast whilst looking for something to keep the mind ticking over whilst on the treadmill. I'm hooked. I particularly enjoyed the Gogol episode. Couldn't help but noticing you did a lot more personal rambling, the Felke stories and the reflections on office life, which put me in mind of Gogol's use of the skaz narrative technique, and wondered if this was intentional, or the ghost of Gogol, the dead soul of Gogol, influencing you. Anyway, I am very much enjoying the podcast, and knowing this stuff is out there, keep up the good work, Andrew. Well, Andrew, I'm so glad you enjoyed the Gogol episode, and as for whether my use of the SCAZ narrative was intentional, hmm, it reminds me of a story. Just kidding. Thank you, Andrew. It is a privilege to receive such good feedback from such a wonderful set of listeners. I am truly blessed. Speaking of blessed, here's a comment from Fernanda. Hi, I discovered your podcast recently, and I came here to thank you personally because it is just wonderful. I still have much to hear, but I want to say that the episodes about Proust, John Milton, and Dostoevsky brought tears to my eyes and joy to my heart. I'm sorry about the grammar. Portuguese is my first language. Portuguese. Wow. What a wonderful note. Fernanda, your grammar in English is impeccable. But who cares about grammar? When I'm reading a comment through tear-filled eyes of my own, I tend not to notice grammar one way or the other. Should we do one more? Here's an opus of an email by Levi. Subject, yet another piece of insufferable fan mail. To Jack Wilson, the George Clooney look-alike, the Reince Priebus sound-alike, the guy in the ditch with a towel over his head, the puller of fire alarms, and the noble whelp of literary geniuses, begging alms for noble causes. Or, as the MP would say, Hi, Jack. (laughs) The MP, I think, is Mike Palindrome. Can I just stop here and say that this is quite an experience for me to read this particular email? It's like watching home movies or a clip show. I sort of remember all those things, those highlights, or should I say low lights. I remember being in the ditch with the towel over my head. (laughs) That was quite a show. We have come a long way, people. Back to the email. I listen to your podcast more than all others combined. That is, I listen to your podcast more than I listen to all other podcasts. Not that I listen more than all other fans. That would really be presumptuous. I was well, maybe not as much as you think. I, two million downloads were on the way. I was more than surprised to hear you say once that you didn't think you had a good reading voice because you have, and I am sincerely saying this, my favorite voice of all time. Its richness and inflections, its tone, and its perfect emphases are sublime to me. I apologize for the effusiveness, but I am only human, and I must say what I know to be true. Wow. Well, Levi. I'm of course too modest to ever agree with you that my speaking voice is the greatest of all time. But then again, who am I to prevent you from telling the truth? The email continues. I'm a software engineer who sees the modern world as already dystopian, and I'm you're going to enjoy this episode on Swift. I can tell you that. And I'm somewhat of an aspiring author. I have loved literature, and I loved writing stories from a young age and have been appalled to learn as a young adult how many amazing classics that I was not furnished with growing up. Hmm. How about Gulliver's Travels? (laughs) We could start there. Levi says, I've been making up for lost time, and your podcast has, besides being great entertainment, continually helped me hone in on what to read next. The episode on the top animals in literature contains the infamous claim by MP that Moby Dick isn't a real animal. He's too human. Let me stop there. That is an infamous claim, for sure. How did that one go? (laughs) I can't remember how exactly that one came up. I chose Moby Dick, and Mike disagreed on the grounds that Moby Dick was too human to be an animal. Is that what happened? Did I fight back on that one? That's such a ridiculous idea. Speaking of satire... How about a president of the Literature Supporters Club joining a podcast and tearing it down with his continuously outrageous comments? The History of Literature podcast almost did not survive his attack on Don Quixote. My God, someone should satirize that. I saw Mike a few weeks ago here in D.C. I forgot to tell you about this before. He was here on some business, and we had dinner at this wonderful rooftop restaurant. He told me this story. It was a perfect Mike story. he was working with this man who uh, he and the man had a few drinks one night. And the man confided in Mike. He said that he looked back on his life. He was an older man. He looked back on his life and said that he'd worked too hard. He'd neglected his family. And now he was filled with regrets. And he said that he was trying to make amends. And so the other day he had suggested to his adult son that they go out for a beer. And his son turned him down. And the man said to Mike, What should I do? Look at what's become of me. My own son doesn't even want to go out for a beer with me. And Mike looked back at the man and made a suggestion. (laughs) Can you guess? You know, Mike. Can you guess what his suggestion was? He had some practical advice. He said, Maybe you should keep some beers in the fridge. (laughs) Classic Mike. It kind of makes sense, actually. It's kind of practical. Probably wouldn't be a bad idea. Offer your son a beer at home. See if that gets things rolling. It's not bad, but can you imagine what this guy probably thought? Probably thought, here I'm telling you that I wasted 30 years of my life at this job, and I'm lamenting how estranged my own family is from me, and your response is, I should throw a six-pack in the fridge. I'm here drowning in sorrow having fallen into an abyss of regret and self-recrimination and existential incertitude, and you've got me popping tops on a beverage in my kitchen. Well, we do what we can, I guess. Back to the email. Levi says, Your description of Moby Dick in that episode inspired me to read it. And one of your alms-begging routines (laughs) inspired me to read Bartleby the Scrivener. Side note? Well, wait, wait, wait. Before you get to your side note, Levi, I have a side note. Side note. Alms-begging routines? You think I would stoop to alms-begging? Not now. I'm telling them about my integrity. I cannot be interrupted right now. Please. Oh. Hello? Who is... Who's,
1: Hello. This is Bartleby. Hi. The Scrivener. Bartleby. You might know me from the story by Herman Melville called Bartleby, The Scrivener. I became famous for my catchphrase, I would prefer not to. So when that irritating chatterbox Jack Wilson asked me to contribute to his podcast, I replied that I would prefer not to. Then he asked me not to make a small monthly contribution. Well, naturally, I preferred not to not do that. So I signed up. (sighs) Won't you please join me in not not donating to the podcast? Mm. Stoop to alms begging.
0: Well, I guess I'm... Guilty as charged. Stoop away, Jack Wilson. Stoop as if your life depended on it. Stoop as if the great scythe wielded by death himself is coming for your head. You've played him in chess and lost. And upending the board and scattering the pieces was only met by a wry grin. Death has seen that one before. And he's seen the stooping before, too. But what else have you got to lose other than your head? Alms begging, okay, okay, guilty as charged. This week, we are thanking new patrons, Daniel, Jason, and Evan, who have made the treacherous journey to the land of patreon.com slash literature, where they've supported the cause of puppies, rainbows, literature, and this woeful little podcast, by the, what was Bartleby's phrase, by the incessant chatterbox, Jack Wilson. My thanks to all the patrons, now and forevermore. Back to the side note. Side note, he's talking about Bartleby here. That story was perhaps the first story that when I read it, I flung it across the room in a rage. I was ranting at my passerby wife. How did that mean anything? What is the point? She couldn't tell me. She didn't know what I was talking about. (laughs) Oh, man. Every... (laughs) Every email that includes an innocent passerby spouse just cracks me up for some reason. I've had similar reactions to Joyce's short stories, The Dead and Araby, two of his best. I always want something to unequivocally happen at the end or feel that there's definitely a point even if the point is subtle and nuanced. Bartleby infuriated me at first because I kept waiting for one of the two main characters to change, but on reflecting on it I grew to love it all the more for its absurdism and for all of the things it does, the questions it makes you ask, etc., and thus was born a turning point in my relationship to literature. Thanks to your podcast. I now love that story and perpetuate the same infuriation on others by recommending it to them. <laughs> well good. <laughs> Perpetuating infuriation on others. It's a story of my life. Levi says, Thanks to your recommendation. I also began reading Moby Dick this year. I had gotten about one third of the way through and was really regretting my decision. I didn't mind the digressions, but Melville's wailing apologetics were almost too much to bear. I thought his trains of thought were ridiculous. What mad course has Jack Wilson led me down? What single-minded madman has he handed me over to? (laughs) Well, we single-minded madmen work together. We have a bond. Join us at your own risk. I was feeling really discouraged about two-thirds of the way through the book, and that was when we took a vacation to New England. It just so happened that we visited Mystic Seaport, and it also just so happened that I ran across an old History of Literature episode I hadn't listened to yet, the one on Herman Melville. Being there in Mystic right then was serendipitous, and that episode gave me lots of perspective that renewed my vigor for finishing the whale. Most notably, I finally realized that Melville's whaling apologetics were meant to be humorous. That changed everything another visitor to Mystic Seaport. It's two in two weeks, I think. We should see if the the Mystic Board of Tourism is interested in sponsoring the History of Literature podcast. Thank you, says Levi. Thank you for helping me with that novel. And thank you for helping me grow as a reader and as a writer. And thank you for so, so much else. The History of Literature is truly invaluable to me. I look forward to a thousand more episodes, if the gods will it. Sincerely, Levi. A thousand more episodes. Good Lord. We'll be talking about the backs of cereal boxes at that point, and Mike will find a way to make that ridiculous topic even more ridiculous, I suppose. Levi, Fernanda, and Andrew, thank you very much for the emails. Let's take one more break and come back with the great Jonathan Swift. And Swift was born in 1667 in, well, where was he born? Usually we just say where, a city or a country. With Swift, it's complicated. He himself said he was born in England, in Leicester, the son of a clergyman. In another account said to be written by him, he claimed he was born in Dublin and that his father was an attorney. The truth is somewhere in between, and this is important for a couple of reasons. Actually, he was born in Dublin. He never knew his father his father died seven months before he was born, of syphilis, which he claimed he got from dirty sheets. And who knows, maybe he did. In any case, young Swift was alone with his mother in Dublin, except his mother sent him away to live with family in England. This was his life for three years. And then he was sent back to Ireland for schooling. And then after schooling, he went to England again. So the Irish called him an Irishman, and he was but sometimes he called himself an Englishman, and he kind of was that too. Why is this important? I think it highlights a couple of things about Swift. One is that he was basically obscure. He was happy not to be pinned down. He wrote letters and code. He seems to have had a sort of private language with his amorous interests. And maybe he wasn't certain himself of his origins. He grew up with English relatives, but knew his mother was in Ireland, Then he returned to Ireland and started going to school with the Irish. And when he was a bit older, his mother moved to England. Then he eventually followed her there. He was an outsider wherever he was, in a sense. Or you could say he was a chameleon, capable of adapting to whatever background was around him. So that's the first reason. He preferred obscurity to clarity. And during his lifetime, his actual nationality or origins were cloudy. There's a second reason I want to save until closer to the end. Swift didn't do well in school, at least until the age of about 15, when he seems to have undertaken a mission to improve himself. He was disgraced at school when he received his degree by, quote, special favor, end quote, which was a term used for students who didn't really earn a degree based on merit. He embarked upon a plan to study eight hours a day, which he kept up for seven years. and He turned himself into a much stronger scholar. It's never too late, folks. Never too late. After school, he went to visit his mother, who put him in touch with a relative named Sir William Temple, who took a liking to the young man, who, as it turned out, was the nephew of Temple's father's friend. He brought Swift into his house, supporting him, and while there, Swift met the King of England, who used to visit Sir William Temple when he was disabled by the gout, so he could go and sit in the garden. Swift took care of the king there and impressed him by, well, what do you think would impress a king? in the 17th century, reading lines of Shakespeare, teaching him Latin or Greek? No. Swift impressed the king by showing him how to cut asparagus in the Dutch way. History is amazing sometimes. Swift was later sent to persuade this king to adopt a proposal and failed. Apparently, the impression created by the Dutch way of cutting asparagus had its limits. Even during these youthful years, Swift had some health problems. We now call it Meniere's disease, but back then its origins were obscure. It brought about vertigo, or what was called giddiness, and bouts of deafness. Swift thought it was due to eating too much fruit. His doctors sent him to Ireland so he could breathe his native air, but that didn't work. Swift believed exercise was necessary for good health, so to ward off his Ailment. he ran a half a mile up and down a hill every two hours. Throughout this time, he was working for this somewhat distant relation, temple, and if he had a profession, you could say it was as a private secretary. Eventually, through some connections, he became a cleric, which is why he's often called Dean Swift, as he was given the deanery of St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. By all accounts, he performed his duties in the church with competence. His main obstacle to advancement seemed to be that he was writing pamphlets, essays, and so on, and his rhetoric was sometimes an irritant to people in power, which happened unintentionally sometimes, intentionally others. Swift was kind of an underachiever in that sense, his own worst enemy, you might say. And then you step back and think, hang on, it's because of this satire and this willingness to challenge power that we care about him at all today. So he was an underachiever in life, maybe, but not in posterity Swift's family tree was full of connections to literature his uncle married the daughter of William Davenant who was the godson of William Shakespeare he was also Swift was also a somewhat distant cousin of the poet John Dryden and there was a famous story about Dryden well let me let me let Dr Johnson tell the story quote swift began early to think or to hope that he was a poet And he wrote pindaric odes to Temple, to the king, and to the Athenian society, a knot of obscure men who published a periodical pamphlet of answers to questions sent or supposed to be sent by letters. I have been told that Dryden, having perused these verses, said Cousin Swift, you will never be a poet, end quote, and that this denunciation was the motive of Swift's perpetual malevolence to Dryden. I love love Dr. Johnson. Swift Swift began early to think or to hope that he was a poet. That is such a good phrase. Just like pamphlet of answers to questions sent or supposed to be sent by letters. Hmm. Johnson has a way of cutting right to it. Swift began early to think or to hope that he was a poet. We see it all right there, the yearning, the ambition, the anxiety, and the judgment of others. Johnson didn't think much of Swift's verses. In general, it's the prose we admire of Swift, how plain it is, how direct, how efficient, how clear. George Orwell was a huge fan, and if you're writing about politics and George Orwell gives you the stamp of approval, well, that's good enough for me. Swift's first success was The Tale of a Tub, which was all about three sons who each receive a coat from their father, with instructions to make no alterations whatsoever, and then of course they do. The sons are meant to represent three strands of Christianity—Roman Catholicism, Protestantism, and the Anglican Church. And the alterations to the coat are examples of humans defying God and making the purity of their religious thread into something tainted and worse. It's funny and pointed and it takes shots at all kinds of targets and it irritated the queen who thought it was blasphemous. Swift didn't help himself in her eyes by following the tail of a tub with an essay about which of the women in the queen's bedchamber she could trust. Swift was on the outs. Swift was given his posting in Dublin and he kept writing his satires from there. He had a growing reputation as a writer now and he had a few lady friends who were special friends of his, there were rumors that he was secretly married to one of them. More mystery, more obscurity, this seems to have been how Swift liked it. Under a pseudonym, he wrote a set of essays called Drapier's Letters in 1724. In these works, Swift exposed a scandal related to the printing of money, and Swift was at great personal risk from the powerful men who were profiting from the fraud at the expense of the Irish people. Those men offered 300 pounds to find out who wrote the letters. Swift had told no one, and only his butler, who had delivered the manuscript to the publishers, knew the secret. The butler went missing for a while, and Swift panicked, thinking the butler had ratted him out. And he fired him, even though the butler claimed that he'd kept the secret and begged to be let back in the house. Swift didn't believe him, and locked him out. But then, later, When he realized that the butler had been telling the truth, he called in the entire household staff and announced that the butler's integrity meant that he was no longer the butler, but should now be called Mr. Blakeney, an officer of the church, who would be given an independent income of thirty to forty pounds a year. Blakeney accepted the post, but continued to serve as Swift's butler, which suited both men. Swift was a hero to Ireland for this Deal with the currency for exposing the fraud. I'm not sure that was ever his goal. I think he was someone who would have exposed fraud just because he hated the idea of fraudsters getting away with it as much as he cared about saving the people of Ireland. Saving them was a side benefit. He was famous now anyway and wealthy, and people knew he could write. There's a great story in Dr. Johnson's essay about a dinner party where everyone is discussing Swift's poem, and they know about Swift's special lady friends. And a gentleman says, surely that Vanessa must be an extraordinary woman that could inspire the dean to write so finely upon her. And Johnson tells us that one of the other women at the party, quote, quote, (laughs) one of the other women at the party, quote, smiled and answered that she thought that point not quite so clear, for it was well known that the dean could write finally upon a broomstick, end quote. Swift knew that his writing had power. Once he was accused by an archbishop of exasperating the people, and Swift scoffed at the man. If I had lifted up my finger, he said, they would have torn you to pieces. We're in 1727 now, and this is the year of Gulliver's travels. You probably know this work in at least the children's form, The Shipwrecked Human, who winds up in a land of Lilliputians, who are six inches high. And then he goes to the land of Brobdignagians, who are so giant he is effectively a Lilliputian in their presence. And then he goes to a land where the Winnems look like horses, and they are in charge, and the Yahoos look like people, and they're all cruel and terrible domesticated animals. There's another book, too, about a flying island, which, in my experience, doesn't usually make it into the children's books. And if you're, say, a college student studying literature, you probably know that these books were not actually children's tales, but political satire. They weren't written for children, but to expose the foibles of humanity trying to govern itself. It's become such a familiar story, it's a little hard to see it clearly now. So I'm going to let Dr. Johnson, who was writing in the same century as Swift, introduce the adult book to you. Quote, this important year sent likewise into the world Gulliver's Travels a production so new and strange that it filled the reader with a mingled emotion of merriment and amazement. It was received with such avidity that the price of the first edition was raised before the second could be made. It was read by the high and the low, the learned and illiterate. Criticism was for a while lost in wonder. No rules of judgment were applied to a book written in open defiance of truth and regularity. But when distinctions came to be made, the part which gave the least pleasure was that which describes the Flying Island, and that which gave most disgust must be the history of Wynnum's. Johnson was ultimately kind of dismissive of Gulliver's travels. He seemed to think it was the product of one idea, little people and big people, and that the rest of it sort of followed predictably from that. But Gulliver's travels made Swift even more famous. He was now someone that a new king and queen would seek out, wanting to meet him. He was still the dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral, though he would live in England now and then as well. He was writing verse, and he was in some famous literary clubs, and he was well known for his conversation, but also for some curious personal behavior. He was famously weird about money. He started a charity to help the poor, setting aside money to loan to them. Because he had a generous spirit and because the mission was to help the poor, he announced that he would not charge any interest, but he required that the day of repayment must be kept absolutely. The poor, being hard-pressed to repay the money on time, which should have been foreseeable to Swift, somehow Swift missed this, Swift was oddly outraged when they failed to make their payments, and he ordered that the debtors should be sued. The effect was that this generous scheme turned people against him and made him the object of hatred by some. He was viewed as worse than a standard moneylender, even though he was charging no interest. He had to shut down the program. He was always strange with money. He was so frugal when he was young that he became kind of obsessed with it, worried about small amounts even when he was rich. He was also scrupulous about personal hygiene. He hated excrement. He had a kind of fear or phobia about it, and he washed his face several times a day with what Dr. Johnson called Oriental scrupulosity. He was known for his muddy complexion and his sour expression, and he hardly ever laughed. We'll talk about this tendency, this sober, deadpan tendency when we get to his other most famous work, A Modest Proposal. Dr. Johnson has another great story about Swift's oddity with money, this time from the poet Alexander Pope who used to go to Swift's house for dinner. "'Dr. Swift has an odd, blunt way that is mistaken by strangers for ill nature. "'Tis so odd that there's no describing it but by facts. I'll tell you one that first comes into my head. One evening, Gay and I went to see him—you know how intimately we were all acquainted—on our coming in. "'Hey, day, gentlemen,' says the doctor. "'What's the meaning of this visit?' How came you to leave the great lords that you are so fond of, to come hither to see a poor dean? Because we would rather see you than any of them. Ay, anyone that did not know so well as I do might believe you, but since you are come, I must get some supper for you, I suppose. No, doctor, we have supped already. Supped already? That's impossible. Why, tis not eight o'clock yet. That's very strange, but if you had not supped. I must have got something for you. Let me see. What should I have had? A couple of lobsters. Aye, that would have done very well. Two shillings. Tarts? A shilling. But you will drink a glass of wine with me, though you sup so much before your usual time, only to spare my pocket? No. We had rather talk with you than drink with you. But if you had supped with me, as in all reason you ought to have done, you must then have drunk with me. A bottle of wine. Two shillings. Two and two is four, and one is five, just two and sixpence apiece. There, Pope, there's half a crown for you, and there's another for you, sir, for I won't save anything by you, I am determined. This was all said and done with his usual seriousness on such occasions, and in spite of everything we could say to the contrary, he actually obliged us to take the money. Pope called this an example of Swift's humor, but he may have meant humor in the sense of disposition rather than comedy. Swift was sometimes magnanimous with his servants, but sometimes could be ruthless about minor discrepancies, and he criticized the servants of others too. Once at a dinner party, he pointed at a servant and said, That man has committed fifteen faults since we sat down. The others at the party were struck by his powers of observation. None of them had noticed anything at all, and his peevishness. The others had been enjoying the conversation, so they never noticed nor cared about the minor faults of the footman. Swift had a brain that couldn't let it go. What do we make of a man who makes it a point to carry coins of different value in his pocket, as Swift did, so that he could give money to beggars, but only in a small enough denomination? On the one hand, it sounds pretty chintzy. You don't want to risk giving too much. On the other hand, how many times have you not given money to someone because you only had a large bill? I'm sorry, I don't have anything smaller than this. You hadn't thought about it enough because it was an option for you to just keep walking. Swift seems at once more generous and at once more petty than you are, it seems. Eventually, the last years of Swift's life were rather sad going to turn the podcast over now to Dr. Johnson, both for the harrowing description of Swift's End of Life and Johnson's summary of his writings, his importance as an author, and especially his prose. Quote, he grew more violent and his mental powers declined till, in 1741, it was found necessary that legal guardians should be appointed of his person and fortune he now lost distinction. His madness was compounded of rage and fatuity. The last face that he knew was that of Mrs. Whiteway, and her he ceased to know in a little time. His meat was brought to him cut into mouthfuls, but he would never touch it while the servant stayed, and at last, after it had stood perhaps an hour, would eat it walking, for he continued his old habit and was on his feet ten hours a day. In the next year, 1742, he had an inflammation in his left eye, which swelled it to the size of an egg. With boils in other parts, he was kept long walking with the pain, and was not easily restrained by five attendants from tearing out his eye. The tumor at last subsided, and a short interval of reason ensuing in which he knew his physician and his family gave hopes of his recovery but in a few days he sank into a lethargic stupidity, motionless, heedless, and speechless. But it is said that after a year of total silence, when his housekeeper, on the 30th of November, told him that the usual bonfires and illuminations were preparing to celebrate his birthday, he answered, It is all folly. They had better let it alone. It is remembered that he afterwards spoke now and then, or gave some intimation of a meaning, but at last sank into a perfect silence, which continued till about the end of october, seventeen forty four, when, in his seventy eighth year, he expired without a struggle. When Swift is considered as an author, it is just to estimate his powers by their effects. In the reign of Queen Anne he turned to the stream of popularity against the Whigs, and must be confessed to have dictated for a time the political opinions of the English nation. In the succeeding reign, he delivered Ireland from plunder and oppression, and showed that wit, confederated with truth, had such force as authority was unable to resist. He said truly of himself that Ireland, quote, was his debtor, end quote. It was from the time when he first began to patronize the Irish, that they may date their riches and prosperity. He taught them first to know their own interest, their weight, and their strength, and gave them spirit to assert that equality with their fellow subjects to which they have ever since been making vigorous advances, and to claim those rights which they have at last established. Nor can they be charged with ingratitude to their benefactor, for they reverenced him as a guardian and obeyed him as a dictator. In his works, he has given very different specimens, both of sentiments and expression. His tale of a tub has little resemblance to his other pieces. It exhibits a vehemence and rapidity of mind, a copiousness of images, and vivacity of diction, such as he afterwards never possessed or never exerted. It is of a mode so distinct and peculiar that it must be considered by itself. What is true of that is not true of anything else which he has written." In his other works is found an equable tenor of easy language, which rather trickles than flows. His delight was in simplicity. That he has in his works no metaphor, as has been said, is not true. But his few metaphors seem to be received rather by necessity than choice. He studied purity, and though perhaps all his strictures are not exact, yet it is not often that solecisms can be found. And whoever depends on his authority, may generally conclude himself safe. His sentences are never too much dilated or contracted, and it will not be easy to find any embarrassment in the complication of his clauses, any inconsequence in his connections, or abruptness in his transitions. His style was well-suited to his thoughts, which are never subtilized by nice disquisitions, decorated by sparkling conceits, elevated by ambitious sentences, or variegated by far-sought learning." He pays no court to the passions. He excites neither surprise nor admiration. He always understands himself, and his readers always understand him. The peruser of Swift wants little previous knowledge. It will be sufficient that he is acquainted with common words and common things. He is neither required to mount elevations nor to explore profundities. His passage is always on a level, along solid ground, without asperities, without obstruction. This easy and safe conveyance of meaning, it was Swift's desire to attain, and for having attained, he deserves praise. For purposes merely didactic, when something is to be told that was not known before, it is the best mode. But against that inattention by which known truths are suffered to lie neglected, it makes no provision. It instructs, but does not persuade. Johnson continues, In the poetical works of Dr. Swift there is not much upon which the critic can exercise his powers. They are often humorous, almost always light, and have the qualities which recommend such compositions, easiness and gaiety. They are, for the most part, what their author intended. The diction is correct, the numbers are smooth, and the rhymes exact. There seldom occurs a hard-labored expression or a redundant epithet. All his verses exemplify his own definition of a good style. They consist of quote proper words in proper places. End quote. To divide this collection into classes and show how some pieces are gross and some are trifling would be to tell the reader what he knows already, and to find faults of which the author could not be ignorant, who certainly wrote not often to his judgment, but his humor. It was said in a preface to one of the Irish editions that Swift had had never been known to take a single thought from any writer, ancient or modern. This is not literally true, but perhaps no writer can easily be found that has borrowed so little, or that, in all his excellences and all his defects, has so well maintained his claim to be considered as original. End quote. Swift's style has become known as Swiftian, less for Gulliver's travels as for his other satirical works, most famously a modest proposal. Spoiler alert, this essay tricks the reader into thinking it's about the plight of starving beggars in Ireland, then goes on to say that the proposed solution is to eat human children. It's a marvelous essay assigned to millions of students for the last several centuries, and it's a great example of sustained irony, and it's been admired by many and adopted to other purposes. The idea, once again, is fairly simple, deliver an extreme to make people rethink what they think they know. Swift, in this essay, takes on the conditions of the poor, but also the attitude of those people who think they have solutions. That's what Swift was so good at, hating the people in charge, the people who think they know better. And it's also where he bumps up against his limits. I mentioned earlier that we don't always care about this bill or that bill from 300 years ago, but a modest proposal is still worth reading, even stripped from its context of the different schemes to address poverty that were running rampant at the moment. It has achieved universality. I'll give you seven great sayings by Jonathan Swift, and once again, you can hear the ring of universality in some or most of these. They were not just This bill is bad and the proponents of it are morons. At his best, he tells us a truth about people we can recognize even today. Number one, it is useless to attempt to reason a man out of a thing he was never reasoned into. (laughs) Words of wisdom, still relevant. Number two, I never wonder to see men wicked, but I often wonder to see them not ashamed. Number three, when a great genius appears in the world, you may know him by this sign, that the dunces are all in confederacy against him. It's a quote John Kennedy Tool used for his book, Confederacy of Dunces. Number four, laws are like cobwebs, which may catch small flies, but let wasps and hornets break through. Number 5. I have ever hated all nations, professions, and communities, and all my love is toward individuals. For instance, I hate the tribe of lawyers, but I love counselors such a one and judge such a one. So, with physicians, I will not speak of my own trade, soldiers, English, Scotch, French, and the rest, but principally, I hate and detest that animal called man, though I heartily love John, Peter, Thomas, and so forth. Number 6. Every dog must have his day. He's often credited with inventing this saying, every dog must have his day, and I'll give him some credit for it, although I think it must have been a nod to some lines in Shakespeare's Hamlet, quote, let Hercules himself do what he may, the cat will mew and dog will have its day, End quote. I think Swift found something interesting in those words, borrowed them, highlighted them, singled them out, carved them into a phrase worth remembering. Every dog must have his day. We still say it today. His friend Alexander Pope, we should probably do an episode on him too, at least on their club, the Scriblerus Club. Pope imported the idea from Shakespeare too, putting into his famous translation of Homer's Odyssey, dogs, ye have had your day. It's one of those great little phrases, like Warhol's 15 minutes of fame, or Fitzgerald's, there are no second acts in American lives that are vivid and repeatable, but ultimately don't really hold up under scrutiny. I know a few individuals who have had no fame at all. They die without having their 15 minutes, and I know some Americans who've had second acts, and sadly, I know a few dogs that have never had a day. What these phrases are good for is to give us something to reflect upon and cite to one another, to maybe give us a little insight Into a phenomenon. When we see someone become famous because they witnessed a robbery and the cameras are in their face, we think, oh yeah, there's the 15 minutes. As in, oh, we all must take a turn. It happens. It can happen to any of us. And when we see some miserable wretch living high off the hog for a moment, excited because he just got a new job or won a softball tournament or came into a bit of money we think, ah, well, every dog must have its day. Fitzgerald we tend to use to say how harsh America is on the aged or the flawed, how much it values youth and unblemished energy, and to point out when someone defies this, aha, contra Fitzgerald, so-and-so made a comeback, even though Americans don't typically have second acts. It doesn't hold up scientifically, but it helps point out how unusual or How difficult it is to do, and what it says about America and Americans that that's the case. And finally, there's this simple phrase of Swift's, number seven May you live every day of your life. I love that one. It's a truism, but what does it mean to live, to really live? I've struggled with this for 30 years, at least, trying to fill the days with meaning and purpose. And being awake, we don't have long before the knock comes, people, and it comes for us all. And here I want to use Swift as a kind of example of what not to do, how not to live. I should probably end with him cautioning us to be happy and live life fully. But he also leaves us with an example of kind of crabbed, pinching, cynical view of life that's tempting and seductive, but ultimately can be self-destructive. Remember how I said there were two things about his obscure origins that were important? Well, here's the second. I have no real proof of this, but I wonder if his childhood had something to do with his extreme cynicism and his attacks on the flaws of others. Here's a boy without a father, his father dead of syphilis, of all things, seven months before he was born, and his mother sends the boy away. Now here's a boy who's moving around, and we know of Children who move around, they tend to get questions from adults, right? And when the people say, well, are you English or are you Irish? And he would say, I'm sort of both. I don't know. I choose one or the other. Wouldn't the first question be, well, what are your parents? Where do they live? And the answer for a young boy would be, you know, that might not answer the question. My father died and my mother sent me away. I don't live with her. I'm speculating here, and I'm not suggesting that this led inexorably to a view of the world that was suspicious of authority. I just find it interesting that that's who the authority figures were for the person who, as much as anyone, had an aversion to people in charge, thinking they knew best. Father knew best? Not when he got syphilis from dirty sheets. Mother knew best? Not when she sent me away. So, that's a backdrop for Swift. Now, Orwell... Orwell says, one could infer from Gulliver's travels that, like Tolstoy and like Blake, Swift hates the very idea of studying the processes of nature. The reason which he so admires in the Hwynhams does not primarily mean the power of drawing logical inferences from observed facts. Although he never defines it, it appears in most contexts to mean either common sense, i.e., acceptance of the obvious and contempt for quibbles and abstractions, or absence of passion and superstition. In general, he assumes that we know all that we need to know already and merely use our knowledge incorrectly. Medicine, for instance, is a useless science because if we lived in a more natural way, there would be no diseases. Swift, however, is not a simple lifer or an admirer of the noble savage. He is in favor of civilization and the arts of civilization. Not only does he see the value of good manners, good conversation, and even learning of a literary and historical kind, he also sees that agriculture, navigation, and architecture need to be studied and could with advantage be improved. But his implied aim is a static, incurious civilization, the world of his own day, a little cleaner, a little saner, with no radical change, and no poking into the unknowable. More than one would expect in anyone so free from accepted fallacies, he reveres the past, especially classical antiquity, and believes that modern man has degenerated sharply during the past hundred years. The most essential thing in Swift is his inability to believe that life, ordinary life on the solid earth, and not some rationalized, deodorized version of it, could be made worth living. Of course, no honest person claims that happiness is now a normal condition among adult human beings, but perhaps it could be made normal, and it is upon this question that all serious political controversy really turns. Swift has much in common, more, I believe, than has been noticed, with Tolstoy, another disbeliever in the possibility of happiness. In both men you have the same anarchistic outlook, covering an authoritarian cast of mind. In both a similar hostility to science, the same impatience with, impo- with opponents, the same inability to see the importance of any question not interesting to themselves, and in both cases, a sort of horror of the actual process of life, though in Tolstoy's case, it was arrived at later, and in a different way. The sexual unhappiness of the two men was not of the same kind, but there was this in common, that in both of them, a sincere loathing was mixed up with a morbid fascination. Tolstoy was a reformed rake who ended by preaching complete celibacy while continuing to practice the opposite into extreme old age. Swift was presumably impotent and had an exaggerated horror of human dung. He also thought about it incessantly, as is evident throughout his works. Such people are not likely to enjoy even the small amount of happiness that falls to most human beings and, from obvious motives, are not likely to admit that earthly life is capable of much improvement. Their incuriosity, and hence their intolerance, spring from the same root. End quote. That's where we are with Swift. Now I want to talk about another satirist. Our Jonathan Swift may be a man named Jonathan Stewart, the hero of The Daily Show, a satirist who spent years and years turning political commentary into an art form smart and funny, and he was a great balm to a great number of people who were trapped in the looking-glass world of leaders who couldn't be bothered to tell the truth about anything, who were hypocritical and malevolent, and who lied to our faces, who pillaged the country for the benefit of themselves and their friends. And you could look at The Daily Show and say, yes, this is important. This is kind of an art form. Stuart is like the Jonathan Swift of his day, And these clips and his reactions are like a modest proposal. And in fact, they are so good that they transcend time. Swift stayed stuck there in that mode. Stewart left The Daily Show and directed a movie. By all accounts, he's living happily, raising his children. I think he came to realize something that Swift never did, or maybe never could that tearing things down is necessary and important for society, but it takes a toll on the person who does it. A creative spirit, or a politically engaged person, or a person trying to live a full and meaningful life has to do more than tear down. You also have to build. And even in a corrupt, horrible world where everything says, what does it matter? Everything will go wrong. Everything will get ruined. The people with power will take and take and take until whatever you're trying to build is as awful as the things that are already here. It doesn't matter. You can't just tear down. You have to build. And even if you cannot build, it doesn't matter. You have to try. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Jonathan Swift. My thanks to Dean Swift, of course, and to Dr. Johnson and George Orwell. Can I have that as my dinner party? My dinner party companions, me, Swift, Dr. Johnson, George Orwell, Mike Palindrome. Jane Austen has to be there. And Virginia Woolf, damn it. And Sappho and Homer. How about all of us plus Gabriel Garcia Marquez? Got to have some Gabo in there. And Zora, and I don't know. I'm not inviting Socrates, by the way, that killjoy. Maybe I should stop longing for this imaginary dinner party and just start a History of Literature podcast instead. I have some good ideas for one. Speaking of which, we have episode 200 coming up next week. I'm looking forward to that, and I hope you are too. I'm Jack Wilson.